Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs. And become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening, and enjoy the show. Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. (laughs) Who needs sleep anyway? Good evening. You're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 7. I'm your host, Otis Gyre. In tonight's episode, I'll be performing four stories for you about following phantasms, criminal incompetence, twisted takes on urban legends, and the nightmarish side of nature. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program, which includes the first two stories. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons 
in the upper menu to sign up today. And thank you for your support. It's time to get started, so lock your doors. Turn the lights down low and settle in. The show is about to begin. Our first tale of terror this evening comes to us from author Jimmy Giuliano. I give to you the red light in the warehouse. Toby was a born liar. When his parents got divorced, he told everyone that he lived with his dad on the weekends at a llama farm, and that he had a water slide that went from his bedroom window to a pool. We were gullible ten-year-olds, but even then we all decided that Toby was full of shit. But Toby stuck by his story, and none of us were ever invited to his dad's house, so we could never call him out on it. It was almost admirable, in a way, that type of devotion to lying. So, even though I admired Toby in a weird way, I also never trusted a single word he said. Not as kids on the playground, and not in the few times we'd spoken in the last fifteen years. Toby was always fun to hang out with, but there was always this distance between us. I've known him for a long time now, but I've never felt like I've really known him. Toby was an actor, and the world was his stage, or however that expression goes. So, when Toby called me out of the blue a few weeks ago and wanted to talk about the red light in the warehouse, I figured it was all part of Toby's theater of life. I hadn't thought about the red light in the warehouse for years. It was just something stupid from our past, something that was a big deal as kids, but as adults, you'd just shake your head and chuckle. I know now how wrong I was. Toby suggested we meet for drinks back in our hometown, even though neither of us had been back there in years. He said it was important, so I drove the three hours to our old stomping grounds. We sat across from each other in a small booth at a rundown bar, and right off the bat, I thought Toby looked different. Not just older, but weathered. Nervous, but not the stuttering or sweating type of nervous. Toby looked like a man that thought he was being followed. I almost smiled. Toby's performances were still top-notch, I thought. My old friend immediately cut to the chase. He said he was convinced that thing that lived in the abandoned warehouse with the red light had finally found him. Twenty years after Toby had disturbed it, it was back. I naturally didn't believe him. I waited for the punchline, for some supernatural twist that would finally give away one of Toby's many lies. I waited for him to tell me that a grinning skeleton floated above his bed, or that he was being awoken in the middle of the night by an icy hand gripping his wrist. I waited for the unbelievable, but Toby's reasoning was much more believable. He looked at me, dead in the eyes, and without wavering, he said, My nightmares are bathed in red. I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me back up and give you a little backstory. Growing up, Toby and I were fascinated by the abandoned warehouse on Jackson Avenue. The structure was a cutlery factory back in the 1950s, but that had long since closed by the time we were in elementary school. 
The property hadn't been used in decades, and the old factory was slowly crumbling away. The bricks were decaying, the fire escape ladder iron was rusted brown, and most of the windows were smashed. The old place was guarded by an eight-foot-tall chain-link fence with barbed wire on top, which gave the building a rather forbidden aura. But what was exceptionally odd to us kids was the red light that burned in the stairwell on the third floor. It didn't seem to have any business being there, but it shone every night through the empty window frame like a watchful red eye. Just a lonely light bulb that never seemed to die. The sixteen other windows on the north side of the warehouse were blocked out, but every night the third-floor stairwell was dozed in crimson. Explaining it now seems rather mundane. It was the most ordinary of things, really, just a red light bulb that burned in the stairwell of an abandoned warehouse. Like I said, ordinary. But we were kids, where even the most ordinary things could be fantastic. So we made it fantastic. To some, it was a secret vampire lair. To others, it was a murder factory for kids with too many detentions. Cult meetings, werewolf breeding, the evil spirit of a janitor that slit his own throat. Imagine a yarn about the stairwell with the red light and some kid in our town probably spun it around a campfire. Everyone believed something different, but there was one thing that all of us agreed on. No one would ever go into the abandoned warehouse, not unless they had a death wish. Toby, apparently, had a death wish. So did his brother. We were twelve years old when Toby announced to everyone that he was moving to Oregon with his mom and brother Jake. Toby said that Jake had recently explored the warehouse in the middle of the night, and it had messed him up real good. They were taking him to a special clinic across the country, and they had to live there. He's pretty disturbed, Toby said. Jake saw something in there, but he won't tell us what he saw. He just kind of shakes. He's always looking around the room, like something is following him. As usual, I thought Toby was full of shit. I didn't believe he was leaving for Oregon, and I certainly didn't believe his eight-year-old brother had gone haunted warehouse exploring. But Toby kept on insisting, and none of our friends believed him. Not about Jake, and not about moving. Even the night before Toby claimed he was leaving, I still didn't believe him. I'll prove it to you, Toby told me. Meet me outside the warehouse at midnight. So I did. I snuck out through my window and crisscrossed through yards until I arrived at the decrepit warehouse. The red light in the third-floor stairwell glowed menacingly. I waited alone, and I studied the cursed building. Something moved three windows down from the stairwell, something dark. It barely flickered in my vision, but it was there. I backed up, wondering if it was Toby playing a trick on me. Or maybe it was someone else. Or something else. Hey, man! Toby's voice cut through the silence of the night, and he rounded the corner of Jackson Avenue. I swallowed hard, and Toby jogged up to me. This is my last night, Toby said. This is my last chance to check out the warehouse. Maybe I can figure out why my brother is so messed up. I pleaded with Toby not to go in there. We all knew the stories. There was something terrible in that warehouse. 
something people aren't meant to see. I told him I thought I saw something moving in there a little bit ago, and Toby just shrugged. I won't get another chance, Toby said. I'm leaving tomorrow. And with that, Toby wiggled underneath a small gap between the chain-link fence and the hard ground, and he slowly crept toward the warehouse. I put both hands on the fence, about to plead with him once again, but no words came out. I actually smirked. This is Toby's grand finale, I remember thinking. His brother isn't sick, but his family probably is moving, and Toby just wants to give us another something to remember him by. If Jake was really screwed up, there's no way Toby would walk into the same certain horror and doom. He's playing us again. An expression popped into my head. Something my dad would say about some yahoo at work who always took his jokes too far. A showman until the very end. I whispered to myself. I watched that magnificent liar crawl into a broken first floor window and then he disappeared. I couldn't hear Toby's footsteps, only crickets in the suburban night. The red light pulsated. After a few minutes, I saw a figure appear in the first floor stairwell. It could have been Toby. Could have been something else. Moments later, a dark figure emerged in the second floor stairwell and then vanished. Seconds seemed like minutes. Even though it was Toby's greatest performance, he still shouldn't have been in there. What he was doing was suicide. Every kid in town would agree. The red light throbbed, and I waited for Toby to appear in the third-floor stairwell. Worst-case scenarios flooded my mind. I saw a cloaked madman clutching a blade or a disheveled woman in a white dress with pale skin. I saw blood spurting out of the empty window like a red mist, only to vanish into the air. I shook off my morbid fantasies, and then I saw Toby in the empty window frame. I was positive it was him. He was wearing the hoodie with Force Football printed on the back. I waited for him to turn and give me the thumbs up, or maybe make a goofy face, but he just stood in the third-floor stairwell with his back to me, staring at something unseen. He was bathed in red. I wanted to yell out to him, but I couldn't. I just whispered Toby's name as loud as I could to get his attention, but either he didn't hear me or he was unable to turn. The pop of a light bulb made me jump, and I heard shards of glass sprinkle the ground from inside the brick-and-mortar monster in front of me. The red light in the stairwell extinguished. There was nothing but blackness in the warehouse, and I couldn't see my friend. I was frozen in place. My feet felt rooted into the ground. I gripped the fence, and although I'd lie in bed later that night with red marks on my hand and my fingers slightly throbbing from clutching the chain link, I didn't feel the sting at the moment. I waited for Toby's scream and for him to come rushing outside, but there was nothing. I'm not sure how long I stood like that, but I eventually found myself on the ground. I hugged my legs into my chest and rocked myself back and forth. I considered running for help, and I also considered going in there after Toby like some movie hero. But instead, I just sat there, lying like a coward. As I slowly rocked on the sidewalk, I simultaneously cursed Toby's name and apologized to him at the same time. I felt like whatever was happening to him in that warehouse was my fault. 
and he probably was telling the truth. His brother probably did stupidly explore that cursed place, and Toby was probably stupidly trying to make it right somehow, and I should have tried harder to stop him. The shaking of the chain-like fence jarred me back to reality. Toby wiggled underneath the gap in the fence and climbed to his feet. I jumped up and hugged him. What the hell happened in there, I said. Toby shook his head. I didn't see anything, nothing at all. But I saw you, staring. I didn't see anything. There was fear in Toby's face. As usual, I thought Toby was lying. He did see something. We walked home in silence, and Toby moved away the next day. I'm not sure when the red light was replaced, because I was too scared to walk by the old warehouse for weeks. But the next time I mustered up the courage to check it out, the red light was back. I'm not sure who replaced it. I saw Toby sporadically throughout high school. He'd visit his dad a few times a year, and sometimes Toby would call me. Sometimes he wouldn't. But we never talked about the red light in the warehouse. Not once. Toby mainly told lies about his new life, how his mom was dating some movie star, and that he had designed some computer software that he was going to sell for millions of dollars. I always played along. We got older, and Toby and I drifted apart, but the memory of that weird night before Toby moved away was still pretty vivid. But I began to think differently about it. What was once undeniably supernatural and macabre became just the wild imagination of a bunch of kids. I no longer thought that Toby had seen anything in that warehouse. It was just Toby, the fantastic liar. Just another one of Toby's pranks. As an adult, I felt stupid to have ever believed it in the first place. But as I sat across the table from Toby all those years later in our hometown pub, I reconsidered. Toby appeared so genuine, so heartfelt, so broken. I couldn't help but take him seriously. How can I help? I asked him. Is there anything I can do? Toby shook his head. There's nothing anybody can do. I guess I just wanted to talk about it, that's all. Please, just tell me. Twenty years ago, outside that warehouse, you told me you didn't see anything. But tonight, you said you disturbed something. If it's found you, then we need to do something. I said that without knowing what it meant. It all sounded so crazy. Toby stared into nothing and took a long drink of his beer. What did you see in that warehouse, I asked. Toby looked down at his drink. His fingers danced across the glass. He thought about my question for a very long time. I didn't see anything, Toby said. Can we talk about something else? We shot the breeze for a while, jobs, movies, sports, until Toby took a phone call and said he needed to go. We shook hands and he left. I finished my beer and walked to the parking lot. My old car rumbled to the highway, but then I quickly turned around. Curiosity was getting the better of me. I drove the ten minutes to Jackson Avenue. I pictured the old warehouse still looking the same and that red light beaming as a beacon of fear, but it wasn't. There was no red light. The warehouse was now a pile of rubble. I stopped my car and got out. I walked to the fence and gripped it like I had those many years ago, this time as a grown man. As I looked out over the pile of broken bricks and concrete, 
It felt like the warehouse was never there at all. What was so clear to me as a child now seemed like false memories, supernatural things and spooky tales that were so obviously made up. I felt stupid all over again, and I wondered if Toby was pulling my chain. Maybe he had called me up, only to reclaim his status as Toby the Deceiver. Toby the con artist. He was probably laughing in his car right now, thinking he pulled another fast one. It's what he was best at. My dreams were bathed in red that night. In my nightmare, I was Toby, frozen in that small stairwell. Sitting on the step in front of me was a man with a ragged beard surrounded by buckets of blood and dead animal carcasses. The man looked up and his face bubbled like it had been seared over an open flame on a stovetop. He bared his teeth and mucus and flesh dripped onto the floor. Don't you ever tell anyone what you saw here, boy, the man snarled. The red light bulb exploded and I snapped awake, drenched in sweat. I washed my face with cold water and cursed Toby's name for giving me nightmares. After all, he was the reason I had shoveled through those memories. Still, I couldn't help but smile. That's probably what he wanted to happen. Toby the conniver. I thought that was the end of it for me. My life carried on like normal. No more red dreams, no supernatural stories. Just the monotony of my adult life. Work, eat, sleep, you know, the ordinary stuff. The phone call came a few weeks later. It was Toby's brother, and he told me that Toby had died. Doctors said he had a brain aneurysm. I saw him, Jake told me over the phone. His mouth was open, and his eyes were frozen in fear. It was like he saw something he wasn't supposed to see. It's weird, but do you know the first thing I thought when I saw him? I thought about that old warehouse back when we were kids, the one with the red light. Do you remember that place? I didn't say anything. I just listened to Jake's troubled breath inhale and exhale through my phone. His voice was tinny and distant, lost almost. Eyes frozen in fear, Jake said to himself. I think I know exactly how he felt. I almost didn't believe Toby was dead, that it was just another one of his lies. But I went to the wake and there he was, just lying there, peacefully, surrounded by flowers, photo boards and a few of his old things. I half expected the corpse to jump out of the casket and yell, Gotcha! But that didn't happen. Not even Trickster Toby could fake his own death. I went out for a few drinks after the wake with a few of my old friends. I didn't tell them that I had seen Toby recently and that we had talked about the red light. It just didn't seem right. We just fondly reminisced about our friend Toby, laughing heartily at all the lies he told when we were kids. After all, it was just Toby being Toby. The lies were his specialty. I lay in bed awake for a long time that night, just thinking about my friend and all of the stories he told that weren't true. Still, I wish he'd told me the truth about the red light in that warehouse. Maybe I could have helped him. But I don't think he'd have wanted that. That would have ruined the illusion. It would have ruined the wonder. And then I began to wonder some more. 
Maybe Toby did have the water slide that every kid dreamed of. Maybe Toby did sell software for millions of dollars. And maybe Toby and Jake did see something awful and terrible in that warehouse. But mainly, I wondered one thing. Who called me on the phone to tell me Toby was dead? Because it couldn't have been Toby's brother. It just wasn't possible. Toby told me a long time ago that Jake had died right after they moved to that special clinic in Oregon. I thought about that tinny and distant voice I'd heard over the phone. I saw him. His mouth was open, and his eyes were frozen in fear. It was like he saw something he wasn't supposed to see. Whoever it was sounded so lost. I think I know exactly how he felt. It was like he was calling from a different existence. I pulled my covers up to my shoulders and felt a smile form at the corner of my lips. Even though Toby was dead, it was still making me wonder. A showman, until the very end. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Our second story this evening is by author Moonlit Cove, entitled Carlisle Pond. That infernal sound wakes me up again. At first, I can't place it as I ascend from the murky depths of sleep. Then I hear it as the fog is clearing, the familiar honking of a car horn. Not again. I murmur and turn to face my wife, June, who is also stirring awake. What is it, Adam? She whispers to me in a dry, hoarse voice. More pesky kids, I'm sure. I slip out from under the covers and proceed to the window facing the pond. I step behind the lace curtain and separate the blinds at eye level. 
There's a car about 50 yards away, turning around on the dirt road on the other side of the pond. Within seconds, its taillights fade away in a cloud of dust and finally disappear altogether behind the trees that line the property on the front. I drop the blinds and curtain and make my way over to the nightstand, next to my side of the bed, to pick up my wristwatch. At the press of a button, its face glows, telling me it's 2.37 a.m. I lie back down on my side of the bed, the spot still warm. All of this nonsense because of some stupid urban legend. I say in a frustrated and resigned tone. I feel June's hand rub my shoulder in that consoling way that I love so much about her. She always manages to keep me calm in times like this. I continue to mull over the events in my head until I finally find sleep again. In 1983, there was an incident that took place on our property. We didn't live here at the time, and when we first moved in, we had no idea how much things would escalate regarding the infamy of this land. You see, we live in the old farmhouse out on Route 41. Yes, that farmhouse. Back when this was a thriving farm, it was owned by the Carlisle family. They had moderate success with it for many years, but began to experience a gradual decline in the late 70s. The farm soon began operating in the red, and the 1983 incident was the final nail in the coffin, so to speak. On that fateful night in August of 1983, a pair of teenage lovers found their way onto the farmland, to the pond to be exact. They were there for a bit of harmless fun, no doubt. Maybe a bit of drinking, maybe a bit of smoking, maybe a bit of making out or skinny dipping. Whatever it was, it didn't end well. Both of them somehow ended up drowning in the pond. Their bodies were recovered, but the investigation never determined why they had drowned. Many rumors began to form as how they died. These encompassed everything from a supernatural entity in the pond that would pull swimmers under the water, to a mysterious whirlpool that would suck people down, to aliens that had crash-landed on the farm and were drowning people. If one could dream it up, it became a theory, and the weirder, the better. This is where the urban legend comes in. I don't know how or when it started or by whom, but supposedly if you drive to the end of the dirt road on the property at night, right up to the edge of the pond with your headlights shining out over the water and honk your horn three times, you will see an apparition of the two teens that drowned floating above the water almost as if they were walking on top of the water. Over the years, it has become a popular activity born out of dares, hazing traditions, and just plain boredom to attempt this nonsensical ritual in the hopes of catching a glimpse at the dead lovers over the water, much to my and June's dismay. I spend the morning standing out on the dock that overlooks the pond, hot coffee in hand. My breath is visible in front of me in the brisk air of late autumn. 
The trees on the other side of the pond look beautiful this time of year, especially when they're accented by the fog lingering above the water's surface. The flaming leaves of orange, red, and yellow appear to rise up from the dense, opaque air. I hear footsteps as June joins me on the dock with her coffee. Nice, isn't it? She asks. Yes. I've always loved it here. So peaceful. It would be perfect if not for the tourists. I make a quotation mark gesture with my fingers on my free hand when I say that last word. We both sip our coffees. Then I add, I think I'm going to go ahead with what we talked about, fencing the property and putting up a gate across the drive. Oh, Adam, we've talked about this before. You know you're not in any kind of shape anymore to be doing that kind of work. Then I'll pay someone else to do it, I rebut. My reply is sharper than I had intended. After a brief pause, I continue. I'm sorry, hon, I didn't mean to snap at you. I'm just so tired of all the honking and tired of catching people on our land. It's just a matter of time until either someone gets hurt or someone tries to hurt us. Now why would they do that? Her tone is as calm as ever. She's my rock. You know how people are. They visit the pond, and when nothing supernatural happens, they may turn their attention toward our house, try to break in or something. June gives me a frowning smirk. Well, it's not out of the realm of possibility, you know. I counter, especially if they're high. June takes my free arm in hers. People that really want to get in will still find a way in, she says. I know, but I think it would cut way down on the number of people to try. If that's what you want, I'll support you. She kisses me on the cheek and turns to walk back to the house. Don't stay out too long. She calls back over her shoulder. It's cold out this morning. I stand there for a few more minutes, soaking in the peace and beauty, and dreading what may come with nightfall. This time, we hear the commotion before we're even in bed for the night. In fact, we're sitting in the rocking chairs on the front porch when we see the headlights approaching on the opposite side of the pond. It's not completely dark yet, but the dusk indigo sky is quickly heading there. Tires make a crunching sound on the gravel and dirt as the car slowly pulls up to the edge of the lake and stops. At the angle our house sits relative to the pond, the car's headlights are not directly on us, and I surmise that the driver cannot see us. We remain still in our chairs and wait. We know what's coming. That one's pretty close to the edge, I say. Before June can answer, the driver sounds the car's horn for the first time. Right on the edge, she confirms when the horn blast ends. A second honk rings out, echoing off the rolling hills of the farmland behind our house. I stand and walk to the edge of the pond. I'm annoyed. My nerves have had enough of this. I take a few steps down onto the front lawn. Don't do anything stupid, June 
calls to me. I wave her off and continue walking. The horn sounds a third time. By now I'm walking down the dock directly across from the car. Surely they can see me in the headlight beams. The driver, apparently in a panic, throws the car into reverse and nails the throttle. The rear tires spin, flinking chunks of dirt and gravel forward. I hear the particles clinking as they hit the sides of the car. With the loss of traction, the car begins to slip forward. First, the lower front valance of the body touches the water, then the motionless front tires. In an instant, the headlights are nearly submerged. The driver lets up off the accelerator before sinking any further. The car sits idle for a few seconds. I stand at the edge of the dock and watch, frustrated as ever. The last thing I want is to have to go and rescue some of the punks that have been terrorizing us. Just as I'm putting a plan together in my head for how to go about helping them, the driver seems to have a moment of clarity. The throttle is applied gently, just enough to not break traction. Inch by inch, the car moves backward, and in a miraculous turn of events, manages to work its way out of the impending watery doom. Once free, the driver executes a hasty turnaround and blasts down the path away from our property, fishtailing the entire way. Only a dust cloud remains on that side of the pond. That was a close one, June says excitedly. She's standing at the edge of the porch. I walk back toward her. I'm telling you, June, I've had it. I just want some peace and quiet back here. Is that too much to ask? Well, we can always move, she offers. But we shouldn't have to. I like it here, minus the legend. I point a thumb over my shoulder toward the pond. She sighs and takes my hand when I reach the porch. I keep walking and she quickly follows behind, still hand in hand. The springs on the old metal screen door squeak as I open it. We enter the foyer and I release June's hand. I guess I'll call the fence people tomorrow, I say as the door clacks shut. I close and deadbolt the thick wooden door behind it. Three nights later. Ronnie is driving back to Carlisle Pond with his girlfriend, Christy. Dense trees of all gnarled shapes and sizes that line the sides of Route 41 come into view in their headlights and vanish just as quickly, each individual tree seeming to relish its brief moment in the spotlight. Christy is visibly nervous, but Ronnie is determined to show her. Can't we just turn around and go back? Christy pleads. We're almost to the turnoff. It's somewhere up here on the left, just past a huge rock. Ronnie says, ignoring her request. Christy sees the rock come into view and feels a tinge of dread rush through her abdomen. There is all manner of graffiti painted on the rock, no doubt a marker to alert curious seekers to the exact location. Ronnie slows the car and turns onto the dirt and gravel road. Grass is growing tall in the center of the path, in between where the car's tires grind on the small rocks. 
Dust kicks up behind him as Ronnie slowly drives the car around a sweeping right turn. Trees cling so tightly on both sides that branches hit the windshield and scrape along the doors. The car exits into a clearing and the pond comes into view. This place gives me the creeps, Christy whispers. And you came here alone the other night? Yeah, isn't it cool? Ronnie stops the car several feet shy of the pond's edge, his headlights revealing the escape ruts he left last time. He points into the distance out the left side of the windshield. Look at that old house. Gross. It looks all run down, like nobody's lived there in decades. She responds. But I swear I saw someone the other night. After I honked three times, he appeared. Just like the legend. That's what I've been trying to tell you. Christy is glad it's dark in the car so that Ronnie cannot see her rolling her eyes. It seems that this is all he can talk about lately. He spent nearly all of his free time recently on the internet researching the history behind the urban myth. The product of his effort is now stashed in the form of printouts all over the car, a news article in the glove box, a first-hand exploration account from a message board in the console, and Christy believes she may be sitting on a Google Maps screenshot with a red circle drawn around the Route 41 turnoff. Are you ready? Ronnie asks. Christy sighs in frustration and says, just get it over with so we can go. Ronnie sounds a horn the first time. Inside the house, I look away from the book I'm reading when I hear the horn blast. June folds down the corner of her newspaper and glances at me from across the room. We share a look that says, here we go again. I get up from my comfy armchair and head to the foyer. I unbolt the locks and open the heavy wooden door. Through the screen of the metal door, I see headlights across the pond. I open the door and storm out onto the porch as June chases after me. A second horn blast rings out. Did you see that? Ronnie asks excitedly. I see movement over there. He points between the house and dock. Christy gasps. Is somebody really living here? She wonders. But the article said no one's lived here since the Carlisle farm shut down. Ronnie sounds the horn a third time. I'm telling you, Christy, no one does live here. I mean, look at the condition of the house. The movement in the shadows increases, and soon, fully illuminated in the car headlights are two figures, a male and a female. It's them. It's Adam and June, Ronnie cries out. Christy recalls the names from the article about the young drowned couple. The figures approach the end of the dock and, in a move that defies all physics, continue their sprint across the top of the water. Christy screams. Ronnie drops the gear selector into reverse and mashes the pedal. The tires spin again, but this time his caution in not parking too close to the edge, pays off, and he gains enough grip for the car to move backward. He makes a panicked turnaround, during which Christy looks fearfully out the side window. The apparitions of Adam and June are way too close now. Go! She shrieks. Ronnie throttles the car forward down the dusty road, 
taillights disappearing behind the trees. I just want to be left alone, I say to June. To rest in peace. We still float above the water. She rubs my back and shoulders in an ever-comforting way. They're just curious kids, Adam, and they can't hurt us. She reassures me. Let's go back inside. As we turn to head back toward the dark, dilapidated house, I say, I love you, June. And she replies, I love you too, Adam. Always will. Thanks for joining me tonight for Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you like what you heard and would like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's episode, which includes two more terrifying tales, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself on Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, where you can sign up for a season pass and get access to all 24 ad-free extended episodes from this season or sign up as a patron for just $5 per month and get access to not just my show but our network's audio archive of hundreds of previous releases including premium versions of our other shows such as the Simply Scary Podcast and Horror Hill. Not only that but you'll be lending your support to this very program and help me continue bringing nightmares to life each and every week. Thank you very much for your support. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Otis Jiry. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering provided by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Program's artwork and logo by David Romero. If you're looking for some fresh tales on a daily basis while waiting for the next podcast, check out my YouTube channel, the Otis Jiry channel, and my extensive collection of narrated tales there. Simply search on YouTube by my name and you'll find me. And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at Otis at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's O-T-I-S at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. 
If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast.